What a joy to be here and worship our great God together with you. And um, for those of you who don't know that who Eric is, I got baptized. This is him. Right here. This is the guy. So, um, yeah, we just celebrate with him and his family uh, what God has done and is doing in his life. And uh, in baptism, it's not just him in there saying something. Uh, the reason that happens in front of the church is because this is a, this is a communal expression. It's uh, us as a church, too, saying we affirm you and your faith, and we want to come alongside you and walk with you and encourage you and disciple you. So um, there's a role for all of us to support you, Eric. Before we go into the message here, I um, just want to mention that a service uh, to honor Paul's life will likely take place here uh, on Saturday, this coming Saturday at 2 o'clock. Uh, just stay tuned to confirm that. I, I, I was with Allison last night where we were talking about some of those details and uh, Jana, our office administrator who organizes all those things, doesn't even know that yet. So uh, that, those, uh, that, that's kind of a preliminary plan. Uh, but stay tuned to the weekly update and maybe be looking for maybe an obituary just to confirm that. But we expect that this, uh, this church will be full of people this Saturday who are gathered uh, to um, honor his life, to celebrate his Savior, and to comfort his family. And, uh... For those of you who in, the, in this church, you hear that name and you don't even know who we're talking about because we know there's a lot of people in this family that are new to this family. The Emmers haven't been able to be as present uh, here on Sundays, just, of course, due to COVID and due to his health situation as he's battled cancer over these years. Uh, but in talking with Allison yesterday, his leaving of this world was beautiful. And it was peaceful. And uh, he had opportunity uh, this last week um, one by one to have his eight kids come to his bedside where he could uh, impart a blessing on them individually. And so he knew he was going, and he prepared his family for that. So we have a big role, church, to come alongside a family in need in these days ahead, months ahead. And um, one thing Allison has asked for help with is, is meals. Uh, what we want to do is provide a supper each day. Uh, certainly for these coming weeks, and then we'll see after that. After the service at our resource center, which is over in our library, their desk, you'll see a piece of paper with a schedule and opportunity. If you just want to take a meal on a day, you can write your name down there. There are a few allergies. There's a little sheet there that just kind of outlines what some of those allergies are, so you can be mindful of that. But please, if that's one way you can help this family uh, after the service, go add your name to that list, pick a meal, uh, call the office, uh, as well. Um, she's also said that she could really use help with laundry. Eight kids, ages 5 to 15. I got three kids, and that washing machine is going 24-7. Uh, I can't imagine just all the work that's there just to, just to do those domestic tasks. We want to relieve some of that burden off of her. So if you can help out with laundry, that would be a huge help. Uh, grab, come, swing by, grab a couple baskets from their house, bring it home, fold it, bring it back. And um, if, if you know how to get a hold of Allison... You can connect with her or maybe call the church office, say, hey, we'd, you'd like to help in that way and we can help arrange that. 
You know, when something like that happens in the life of our church that, you know, affects us deeply, uh, you know, I, I think of what I'm already planning to say on Sunday and I go, is this appropriate? Does something need to change about what happens here on Sunday, what, what is said in light of what's taken place? And, and as uh, I, I thought of that on Friday, my message, oddly enough, was already done. And um, I thought, you know what, what an appropriate message to share on this Sunday, two days after Paul has gone to be with Jesus, because this message just so well aligns with Paul and what, how he lived his life and what uh, was uh, the values he lived by. Um, so, um, in, in fact, in, in talking with Allison yesterday, there was a verse, Romans 10 verse 9, that in these final days, Paul wanted Allison to read to him over and over again. And I thought, how cool, because that's my key text this morning. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 to 17. You could just open there and leave it open on your lap. We're going to come to it in a few minutes. So last weekend I was away. My family and I, we were in the States for American Thanksgiving. The great thing about marrying an American is you get two Thanksgivings. Isn't it wonderful? Katie, Katie Youngstra is marrying my brother-in-law. She was there too. Isn't it awesome? Two Thanksgivings. And um, we, we kind of did Christmas as a family last weekend uh, uh, while we were at it. Uh, and, and we did what we always do every Christmas when we're with my in-laws. We reenacted the Christmas story. And so we gather all the grandkids, and I'm the narrator typically, and everyone's got a role, normally more than one role, and uh, we, we have a good time. And so we enacted the Christmas story that everybody or almost everybody knows really well, maybe off, you know, off by, by memory, that story that as Luke uh, uh, tells it in Luke chapter 2 begins, in those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world, and you probably know how it goes. Mary and Joseph head to Bethlehem, right, where they find a room in the inn, and Jesus is born there in a stable or a cave or someplace in the town of Bethlehem. And, and then we, we know this part of the story. It's a story uh, that the little kids here just recounted for us, Luke chapter 2, verse 8. It says, There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause you great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom His favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. Upon receiving this good news and beholding this little baby, this king, this savior, their, their next response, their impulse was to spread the word about him. Why? Why? You know, this is the thing about joy. Joy just wants to be shared. Joy needs to be shared, right? Joy increases when it's shared. I remember when each of my three daughters was born after I was able to hold them in my arm and I just felt that love and that joy. Now, what I wanted to do is I wanted to go tell the world and I wanted to phone my parents and my family and tell everybody about what had happened. 
because I was so full of joy. And that's what joy does. Joy wants to be shared. And so that's what they're doing here. They just want to share this great joy that they are experiencing. But they've also heard the words of those angels who have said today uh, that they came to deliver good news of great joy that is for all the people. This joy of this boy, of this Savior, this Jesus who has been born to save people from the guilt of their sin, from the finality of death, from the despair of a hopeless life, from, from meaninglessness, from an empty life, this Jesus has been born for all people. He's a universal Savior. He's for everybody. It's so interesting that the news was delivered first to these shepherds because that's not what you would have expected, right? Shepherds in those days, they were kind of the lowest rung on the social, spiritual totem pole, right? They were the least religiously inclined group. They had a bit of a reputation for being wild men. You would have thought that the angels would have delivered this good news to to, to the priests, to to the... to the scholars, to the teachers, the religious teachers, but no, they deliver it to the shepherds, the least religiously inclined. And in Matthew's telling of the story of the birth of Jesus, that news gets delivered not, not to, again, the religious leaders of Israel, but to these foreigners, these magi, these rulers from a distant land who come and bow down before Jesus and worship Him. And these are all ways of showing us that the Savior is really for all people. It's interesting, as I was thinking about this story, it kind of struck me that the way that Matthew and Luke start the story of Jesus with His birth kind of prepares us for how they will end the story of Jesus' life on earth. It kind of comes full circle. The way it starts is actually the way it ends. Because if you go to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, you find the final words of Jesus. And and we know that somebody's final words, their parting words, they're going to be deeply important, meaningful words. Like if you know these are your last words to those you love and care for, you're probably not talking about the weather or the bombers or inflation. You're talking about that which is truly important, what matters most. I mean, Paul, Allison was recounting last night, yet over these last final days, just the deep, meaningful conversations they had together because they knew it was their last. And so Jesus, with his final words to these guys and gals, his first disciples, in, in, in Matthew's account, he says this. You probably know these words. We call it the Great Commission. It says, Jesus says to them, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Those are his final words in Matthew's story. Right? Make disciples is actually the one command. If you were to translate this most accurately, it's make disciples. And then the rest is how they do that. By going to all nations, by baptizing, by teaching. Make disciples, and that begins by going out to all people to share the news, to spread the word. So the story ends just like it began. 
And in Luke's recounting of the life of Jesus, his final words are found in Acts chapter 1 because Luke wrote Luke and he wrote the book of Acts. And so Jesus' final words are in Acts chapter 1 verses 8. Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father is set by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my, say it, witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. With Jesus' final words, what does He want to impart to them? Guys, my Father is going to send you the Spirit which will empower you to do that which I'm calling you to do to be my witnesses in all the world. In other words, Luke is saying it ends just like it started, with the shepherds going and spreading the word, the good news of great joy to all people. So, you know, our mission statement as a church is that we exist to make disciples who experience new life in Christ, who express new life to one another, and who extend new life to those who don't yet know God. That extend new life part to those who don't yet know God, that's the witness part. And so in this sermon series we've called our core four, we've been looking at the four core values of our church, or at least the things that we think ought to be the four core values, because we've got a room to grow in all these. And each of us, if we are followers of Jesus... These should be four core values in our life that we should be growing in. And so this morning, we're going to take this Sunday and next Sunday to look at that fourth core value. So if you've been tracking with us, you know that we started by looking um, at that first core value. We called it wholehearted worship. And then we talked about the value of authentic community. And the last two Sundays, we talked about the value of, do you, uh, do you remember? Service, passionate service. Boy, it would be nice if it stopped there. Just us getting together, worshiping, praying, loving one another, serving one another. But there is a fourth core value which corresponds with the final words of Jesus when He says, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And so this fourth core value we're going to talk about this morning and next week is that of courageous witness. We want to be a church and a people of courageous witness. If we are a Christian church, and we are, we should be a church that seeks to share the good news of Jesus across the globe and across the street. And that's why our Christmas project kind of has both of those aspects, right? Across the globe, where we're supporting some uh, persecuted church leaders in a sensitive country in the Middle East as they help disciple and grow the church in that place and spread the word there in a dangerous part of the world, and across the street, as you've already heard, you know, how can we serve those around us, be the hands and feet of Jesus, to love people in Jesus' name as a part of our witness to our community? If you are a Christian, you are called to share the good news of Jesus. You are a missionary. You know, when Jesus, when he called his first followers, he said, follow me and I will make you Fishers of pickerel. No. Just that kid. God bless it. Country music and pickerel fishing. I couldn't relate to that at all. 
I got to get my wife to take the fish off my hook when I catch one. I'm right touching that. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Those two things cannot be separated. Everybody Jesus calls to follow him, he's, he, he sends. Everyone he calls to himself, he sends out. Everybody God saves, he sends. So if there's a big idea here in this message, it's that everyone that God saves, God sends. The good news there is he said, follow me, and then go save people. He didn't say that. He said, follow me, and I will make you. I will make you fishers of people. I'm going to do this work in and through you if you're willing. And I know that sounds kind of scary or daunting, this idea of being a witness to those around us. But I think that word witness is really important. What is a witness? I don't think it's by accident that that's the word we keep seeing over and over again to describe those disciples. What is a witness? Have you ever been on a witness stand before? Never have. It's on my bucket list. It seems like it would just be fun. That would mean something bad had happened, though, so that wouldn't be good. Um, what is a witness? What do you do as a witness? What is your job? To instruct? To teach? What is your job as a witness? To give an account of what you have seen, what you have heard, what you have experienced. That's what it means to be a witness. In fact, look at Acts chapter 4, verses 18 through 20. It says, when they, the, the rulers, they were upset at those first disciples of Jesus who were spreading the word, when they called uh, the disciples in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus, Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Okay? That's being a witness. Your job isn't to teach. Your job isn't to convince. Your job is to just testify to what you have seen, you have heard, you have experienced. And we can all do that. We all, as followers of Jesus, have experienced, we have seen and we have heard and we have experienced. And, and, and to be a witness is simply to share that. And so I don't think it has to feel as ominous and daunting um, as we sometimes feel it is, we are simply called to be witnesses. It would go on to say in Acts 4.32 where we see that verse uh, or that term again, we are witnesses of these things, Peter says, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. I like that. And so is the Holy Spirit who is a witness. That's, that's Peter's way of saying sharing the good news is our job, saving people, Bringing about faith is God's job. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in somebody. We're called to witness to people. We're not called to win people. We're not called to convince people. We're just called to be witnesses, to share what we have seen, heard, and experienced. And so with the rest of our time this morning, I just want to talk a little, a little further about what does it mean to be a witness. And then next Sunday, we're going to follow up and just be a little bit more practical uh, in, in kind of applying that in our own relationships. What does it mean to be a witness? Uh, we witness by showing and telling. Do you remember back in the days when you were in kindergarten, you did show and tell? It, does that still happen in school today? Any teachers? Do you still have show and tell in school? You do? Yeah. Um, we, we can maybe all remember something that was precious that we came and, and we showed 
so they could, they could see it, and then we explained it so that they could hear it. And I thought, that's really what it means to be a witness. We witness by showing and by telling. We witness with works and with words. So I want to talk about those two things. We witness with works and words. You know, there's two sayings we've all heard. The first is this, a picture says a thousand words, which is a way of saying when you see something, um, it maybe has a, a greater impact, a greater power than just hearing about something. A picture says a thousand words. We've also all heard the saying, actions speak louder than words. You know, Jesus would say in Matthew 5, when he, he would say about us, the church, you are the light of the world. Nobody, nobody like hides a light in their home. They set it up high for all to see. You are a city on a hill. You are the light of the world, right? So that all can see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This light that we shine are, are good deeds that others see that that kind of point them to, draw their attention to the goodness of Jesus, the goodness of the gospel. It's a way of Jesus saying the way we conduct ourselves and our actions and our attitudes speaks of the goodness of the good news. It says something about the hope we have, the contentment we find in Christ, the joy we find in Him. Uh, Paul says in Titus chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, he's giving instruction here to Titus, this, this young church leader, and um, he says in Titus 2, uh, 9 and 10, he says, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them and not to talk back to them. And some people think, does the Bible condone slavery? Why doesn't it say slavery is bad? Slaves, you should resist. Slaves, you should run away. And some people have maybe thought, the Bible condones slavery, and we're going to see in a moment that that's not what he's talking about here at all. Teach, tell slaves to, to obey, to be subject to their masters in everything, to please them, not to talk back to them, not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they may make the teaching about God our Savior. What does it say? What? Attractive. Attractive. Tell, teach them to conduct their lives in such a way that it would make the gospel message attractive. Now, what does that mean? Does that, is he talking about kind of like, um, your job is to make Jesus look good? Like, the, like this, your life is like an episode of the gospel makeover. You ever seen those makeover shows? Where you like take a person who's maybe kind of an ordinary looking person, or you know, someone got some blemishes, and, and then you see them transformed, right? With professionals that come with cosmetics and, and hairdos and everything. And they transform that, that person's look. You have the before and you have the after. And it's amazing. And, and, and as Paul's saying, your job is to be the makeup on the face of Jesus, of the gospel, right? You're supposed to kind of just hide all the, you know, the, you know, the, the blemishes and make it look really good. Is that what it means, that we're called to make the gospel and the way we live attractive? Not at all. That's not what he's saying there. We cannot make the gospel any more beautiful than it is, any more good than it is. In fact, that word there in the Greek is literally the word adorn, right? Live in such a way that you will adorn the good news of Jesus. That word adorn there, think of jewelry, right? He's talking about earrings and, and maybe a necklace and maybe something on the head, right? 
It doesn't obscure or change the face, but what it does is it's kind of sparkly and shimmery. And when people see it, it catches their eye and it draws their attention and their focus and being drawn by these adornments, they behold the beauty of the face that, 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 that all of this surrounds. And so what he's saying is be like that. You're, you're like the sparkly jewelry around the gospel that draws the attention of people so that in seeing you, they will be drawn to see what makes you different? What gives you a better hope? And so our lives, Paul is saying here, our lives have the ability to draw people's attention to the goodness of Jesus in the way we live, in our actions, in our attitudes, the way we work, the way we spend our money, the way we treat our spouses the kindness we give to those who don't deserve our kindness, all has the ability to catch the attention of people. It causes them to ask questions. Why do you live like that? Why do you act that way? How can you do that instead of responding like this? And so these slaves, they're maybe in a difficult predicament, but he's saying, hey, even these slaves, they have the ability in the way that they conduct themselves to not live in bitterness or anger, but they have the ability to actually draw the attention of those around them, even including their masters, to the goodness of the gospel of Jesus, in whom they find greater hope because um, there is a more important freedom than physical freedom. Being loosed from the chains of our soul is better than just being loosed from the chains on our wrist. So Paul would go on here, he would say in the next verses, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, these slaves, they had a better hope than the, than the hope of physical freedom and liberation. They had hope in Jesus Christ. They had a joy in Christ. They had a contentment in Christ. And he's saying, the way you live your lives preaches about your hope. It has the ability to draw people's attention there and ask questions about what makes you, you. And so your works, they maybe can't answer the questions people ask, but they can cause people to ask the questions. Which is why Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, he says, In your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. I think Peter is presupposing, hey, if you are living your life in accordance with the good news of Jesus, if you are finding your hope and your joy in Him, if you are living by the power of the Holy Spirit, people will notice. And they will ask, what makes you different? And when they ask you that, He says, be ready to give an answer. Be ready to speak. But their attention is drawn by your life. 
So I, I heard that Rosalind Carter, that was Jimmy Carter's wife, ex-president of the United States, she passed away, had her funeral this last week. Uh, her grandson got up there and said, my grandmother doesn't need a eulogy, her life was a sermon. So your life speaks. All of your actions and your attitudes, they are preaching. What is your life saying? Is your life a living witness to the beauty of the gospel? Does your life lend credibility to the good news of Jesus? So we witness with our works. The content of our life, our actions and our attitudes. There's a quote that maybe you've heard that says, Preach the gospel at all times and, if necessary, use words. I guess it's a way of saying we can preach the gospel with our lives and sometimes we might need to use words and, I, and, I, and I'm going to maybe correct that a little bit in a minute. Um, but, it, but the whole point of that statement is that your life does talking. Your life speaks. Let your life do the talking. Um, and it's at this point that I want to volunteer. I want somebody who's going to be brave enough to come up here. Susan Shaw, come on up. So Susan, I want you to come up here. Have you ever played the game charades? What's that? Okay, so how charades works is you're given something and then you have to act it out and then they have to guess what it is. So just take a few, just take a few seconds to read it and then just act it out. Okay, go ahead. Just try to guess if she's... (laughs) Keep going, doing good. Okay, you're never going to get it. Stop. Just stop. <laughs> yeah, you can leave now. <laughs> what was it? What, what were you acting out anyway? Yeah, the group. I'm, su- I'm surprised you didn't get it. It was the Greek philosopher Aristotle tutoring Alexander the Great. Come on, go. <laughs> but to be fair to you, I set you up to fail. Your whole, the whole purpose was you were supposed to fail because I'm trying to make a point. There are some things that can never be communicated by actions. There are some things where actions is never enough, right? It doesn't matter what you do up here, how long you take. Nobody <laughs> is ever going to guess The Greek philosopher Aristotle tutored Alexander the Great, which is true, it happened. Why? Because that's a truth that involves historical events and historical people. Names, dates, events. Um, And that's not something, any amount of living, 
Just living your life and the attitudes you, you live by can communicate. And um, so it is with the gospel. The gospel is about names, a name in particular. It's about history, historical events that unless you, you use words to share them, people can never know. This is why it says in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, salvation is found in no one else for there is no other, say it with me, name. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. We need to know of this one, this name. And this is what Paul would say in Romans 10, verses 9 to 17. This first verse was the one that here was so meaningful to to Paul Emmer in these final days. Paul the Apostle writes, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in Him will never be put to shame, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For the same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one whom they have not believed in? Okay, if they have to call on the name, how can they call on that name if they have not believed in that name? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them, of speaking to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing. The message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. What Paul is saying is it's absolutely essential that people hear of Jesus. They hear who he is and what he has done and what is available to them through faith in him and in his death and in his resurrection and no amount of being a good neighbor and helping old ladies put groceries in their trunk and, and, and coming by and blowing the snow out of your pastor's driveway, and no, no amount of good goodness in your life, in your actions, in your attitudes can ever, ever speak that to your neighbor, to your coworker. That can only be done with our mouth, with words. I mean, that's why you're here, right? At some point, you heard. You're here believing and serving and worshiping Jesus because at some point, Somebody spoke, or somebody wrote, and you read, but there were words involved, and you heard, or you read about Jesus, and God, by His Spirit, caused you to believe, and you were saved, and you were made new. You're here because somebody was a witness with their words. I heard of somebody who... uh, tried to be a, just a good faithful witness in his actions at his workplace over years and it was his final day and they were, his colleagues were throwing him a work party and uh, you know he just tried to live a life of real integrity and they threw him a party at a cake and they said to him, we wondered what made you special. We decided you must be a Buddhist. And then he thought, oh, I, I, guess, I guess it takes more than just actions. 
to spread the word, to be a witness. Your life can lead people to ask questions, but only your words can answer those questions and provide the reasons that you find your hope in Jesus. We need to witness in both works and with our words. And that's so important. That's so important that we, that we are courageous witnesses for Jesus. Because as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile, in other words, all people. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the good news. Why? Because it's what everybody needs. There is no hope. There's salvation nowhere else and in no one else other than in Jesus. We have been entrusted with this incredible message, this life-giving message and hope that God has placed in our hands. And He says, I want you to spread the word to the world that needs to know, that needs to hear. Be not ashamed of it. The gospel is the power of God. God is at work using it as we share it to bring about faith in the lives of people. The gospel is the power of God to save. And so next week, we're going to look at how we can actually practice that, some practical principles of sharing uh, with our words, um, with our life, our, our faith, spreading the word. But this is what I want you to know, okay? Our witness is so important. This has to be such a fundamental value of our church and our lives because the gospel is so important. The gospel is so important. Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, yet lose his soul? We need to feed the hungry. And we need to care for the hurting. And we need to tell people about Jesus. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world, yet lose his soul? That's why courageous witness in both work and word must be a core value of this church and a core value in us who call Jesus Lord. For everybody that God saves, God sends. So the question that I leave with us to ponder, to pray about, to take home is, does my life reflect that this is a core value? In the way I go about thinking about my life, my actions, my attitudes. In the words I speak, does my life reflect that courageous witness is a core value? Does what we do as a church reflect that courageous witness is a core value? What would it look like to grow in witness? So please come back next week. We'll talk a little bit more deeply about that. Father, we are just so grateful that you have not kept us in the dark, but you have revealed your son. You have shown us the way, God, uh, to have life, an abundant life. And Lord, you've entrusted us with this incredible good news, just like you entrusted the shepherds 2,000 years ago. So you've delivered it to us, and it, and it has transformed and is transforming our lives, those of us who have believed in you. 
And God, we know that that's not just news and joy that's meant for ourselves, but is meant for us to go and to give to those around us. And so, God, we are thankful for the faithfulness of those who are witnesses to us, to parents, um, to friends, to neighbors, to authors, speakers, Lord. You have used people um, to speak to us that have brought us to this point. God, would you just show us what it would look like for us, your people, uh, to be what you have called us to be, witnesses of this good news. Lord, would you show us what it looks like for us just to leave here uh, and just to go back to our homes, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our schools, our circle of friends, Lord, and, and to, in both our life and with our lips, testify to the truth of Jesus. Lord, just use us um, because there's um, no greater thing to share with the world than the good news of your Son. Lord, just empower us by your Spirit just to give us um, courage and wisdom to do that which you have called us to do for your glory and for the good of this world that so desperately needs to know you. We pray in your Son's name. Amen.